You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and run to the book of Galatians. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, what we read this morning, and a bit of chapter 4. Um... If we haven't met, my name is Jace Williamson. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm responsible for students and discipleship, which uh, entails community groups and D groups and Bible studies and all that fun stuff. Uh, And so um, I am uh, thankful for online church today. Uh, And uh, we don't talk about that very often. Mike mentioned that as in the welcome, but um, I have a sick kiddo, so my wife is at home. Uh, with her, she's able to tune in. Uh, my grandparents tune in every Sunday. They say I'm the best preacher they've ever heard. Okay? But they also told me that I was just as good as Michael Jordan playing basketball growing up. So I don't know. Uh, it was, they puffed my ego a little bit. But we do uh, uh, appreciate our online um, presence, but we don't gather around a product. Right? We can easily make online presence a product to be consumed. We come together as the church to, to love each other, to love God, and there is just something incarnational about gathering together. That has nothing to do with my message at all, but I just thought I would mention that. Uh, we have been walking through uh, the book of Galatians, and when you see Mike, give him a handshake for covering chapter 3, which is 2,000 years of history. Okay, you didn't realize that, did you? He didn't say that. Uh, But 2,000 years of history, he covered that last week. Uh, And so he did a great job kind of setting up the the pinnacle, the climax of the book in uh, what we're going to see today. And if you haven't been walking with us, one of the things, I'll catch you up really quickly. There is a distortion that has come into the church. And at the center of this distortion is an application of the gospel and how it relates to the law of God. So if you remember in chapter 1, there was this distortion of the gospel. There was this idea of people coming in and saying, hey, uh, Jewish Christians were saying to Gentile Christians that faith in Jesus was really great, but don't forget about all the other stuff God calls us to do. Dietary laws, circumcision, observing the season and Sabbath and all those things. You still got to do all that stuff for acceptance and to be completely pleasing to God. And so this is an extremely important issue for Paul because at the heart of this division, the nature of the gospel was at stake. By teaching Jesus plus anything else as a requirement for full acceptance, for justification, these teachers were presenting a whole new gospel. And so the nature of the gospel is at stake. The implications of Jesus' work were at stake. And so Paul builds an argument to reveal the true nature of the gospel is one that is built on the work of Jesus through faith in Christ, nothing else. And a life built on these things leads to true life, moral living, and flourishing, which is the second half of the book. But one question that I've been thinking about a lot lately comes from a Christian psychiatrist by the name of Kurt Thompson. And he asked this question, and he comes after a statement. He says this. I think I brought it with me. It says, we are all born into the world looking for someone 
looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. And here's the question. Who are you looking for in life? Looking for someone, looking for us, searching. And the question is, is who are you looking for? Another way of saying this is that we desire to be seen. We desire to be recognized and known. If you're on social media this week, you may have seen two made-up holidays, National Sunday, I'm just kidding, National Sunday and National Daughter Day. But one of the, at the core of this uh, holiday, I'll, I won't make fun of it anymore, is uh, at the core of it is this idea of being able to show off who you love, right? And, and we desire that. At a, at a, and I'll be honest, I scrolled through a few, but after a while, I was like, okay, I'm done, all right? I love my kids, and I want them to be recognized by me and by God and all those things. But, but here's, here's where the underbelly of this would, would show its head. Studies would show that if we are not adequately seen, known, and recognized, another way of saying this is loved, for the first year of our life, we will actually operate in a deficit for the rest of our lives. We will have trouble bonding with people. We will have a fear of abandonment. We will have a fear of getting too close to someone and then them leaving. And maybe, maybe that's some of the part of why you have never been able to get close to somebody else because there was some traumatic accident early in your life and you just never have felt the closeness of another human being. And so one of the ways that we try, try to make up for this deficit is we search for things that will, that will fill this void like relationships or climbing the ladder at work or through attracting people through our stuff and saying, look how well off they are. We desire that eye upon us, the look at me moments. And you may feel this at a deep level. You're like, I don't want to come up on that stage, Jace. That's not, uh, I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But know that this feeling isn't wrong. This is a very human longing. And what humans do is we create these religious substitutes. And humans for a long time have conjured up a lot of ways to try to figure out how to get God to turn his eye upon them to be seen by him. And this is at a certain level the debate that is happening in the Galatian church. Yes, faith in Jesus is very good. But do you want to know how to be seen by God? Fully recognized, fully loved, follow the law. And this question may be under the surface for why you're even here in this audience today. Is that you have this deep desire, this deep longing to be seen. And the stuff that I got going on at work or the stuff that I got going on at home or in my relational life, it just isn't working. So maybe church. And in this section, Paul gets to the heart of his argument, and many scholars call this the pinnacle of the letter. And why, do they, why would they say that? It's because Paul is going to dive deep into the implications of Christ's work for us and God's plan for his people and what exactly the gospel brings for us, and that's adoption into God's family. 
So what we saw last week kind of sets the stage of what we're going to see today. Paul uses the example of Abraham, if you look in chapter 3, to show us the nature of the gospel. He's, a, he's essentially saying that if you want to argue with me that it's Jesus plus something equals righteousness, let's go back to the patriarch of our faith, Abraham. Let me show you how Abraham would agree with me, that it's through righteousness alone that we're saved, through Christ. Because here Abraham was justified, he was considered righteous through faith, not works, not the law, through faith. So why does that matter for us today, and how does that lead to our adoption? You see, Abraham was given a covenant promise. And the essence of this promise was that he was going to start a family and that God was going to be their covenant God, totally based on God's faithfulness, not ours. If you go read the story in which the covenant between Abraham and God is given, Abraham is asleep. Like, don't miss that. He's asleep. There's, there's like, he, it is totally upon God's faithfulness that God gives this promise to the nations, and the promise was life with God and a big family with God. And it was through this family line that the world would be blessed. But then this law came about. And Mike looked at last week that the essence of the law was, was boundaries, right? It was freedom through restriction. When we follow God's law, we are walking in the way that God has designed. It is for our good. But there's a problem. Our human nature would do what? Would distort the goodness that God has given us to try to get back to God. And so this is where Mike would say it's the MRI, right? It shows us the problem. And Paul would say that the law was never meant to give life, but rather reveal sin. So if you look at verse 23 with me, I'm going to read from the NASB because I think it's very helpful in the way that it uses a word that the ESV doesn't. And the NASB says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law does its work to lead us to the recognition of our need to be saved by righteousness. Anybody fail this week at the Ten Commandments? Let's just start there. Let's just start at the first one. No other guides before me. Anybody do that? Probably. I did. We cannot hit this law, that God, this standard that God has given us. And so what is the law for? It tutors us. It's a great word. It's a, it's a lesson. And the lesson is... We need a savior. And this is what is so wild, that the law was never meant to show you that you could gain God's favor. It's there to show you that you couldn't. And so there was a negative aspect of like, hey, here's the standard that God has set. You can't hit it. But there's this positive aspect of like when you walk in this law, you're actually walking and flourishing. It's the way God has designed the world. So here's our problem, though. Our problem comes when we elevate God's law to a place of Savior, where it was always meant to teach us that we needed a Savior. And the promise has been since Abraham that we're saved through righteousness alone. And the law is not evil. It's when we use the law to seek our own justification is when we go wrong. 
So I have two little girls, and we foster a little boy. And one of the things that I hope to teach them as I disciple them in the way of Jesus is that when we walk in the way of Jesus, it leads to life. And so as I teach them obedience, as I teach them a way of life, when they get out from under my custody, as the Bible would say, my guardianship, that's not where they get to go, hey, that was great, now I'm going to live my own life. I pray that doesn't happen. And it's the same way with Jesus. When Jesus came, what do we read? When Jesus came, it's through faith, but we don't rid ourselves of the way that God has called us to walk. But often we twist God's way of life to manipulate him. That's a word, right? Maybe you showed up this morning because, you know what? Things aren't going very well. Things are just, you know, not doing very, my my business isn't doing well, my family's not doing well. You know what I need? I need to be blessed. Go to church this morning. You ask these questions, if, you know, I could just be a better person, if I could just serve more, if I could just study my Bible more, if I could just pray more, maybe God will love me. You see how we can make good things, God, things that God calls us to do, ways of seeking our own justification? And another way of saying this is another way to be seen, another way to be recognized. And what Paul is saying is that doesn't lead to, to freedom, that actually leads to slavery. You will always feel enslaved when you seek to justify yourself through good works. Why? Because there just isn't enough that you can do to meet the standard. You will feel the slavery that religion will bring. God is always someone who needs to be pleased. God is someone who is always needing more. You will always be driven by fear. And you always have anxiety and insecurity about where you stand with God. I'm not sure that's what God has called us to do. Because verse 25 says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We are no longer under the guardianship of the law. It has taught us what we needed to know. It is now time to move to Christ. And this is the great turning point in history. Because in verse 26 it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ, we are all sons through faith. This is the climax of everything Paul has said so far. This is the climax of the gospel itself. It has the heart of what Paul was saying was being distorted. Because this is the main point of what we're going to see in Paul's text. The heart of the Christian life is that we are adopted into the family of God through the work of Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, you are a son of God. Full stop, nothing to add. It's not something that you're aiming at. It's not some future attainment. It's something you already are. You are a son of God. And for me to preach any addition to that truth is to distort the very nature of the gospel. And this word son in verse 26 is important. It refers to all Christians, male and female. 
But before we're too quick to, to just move to children, I want to I tell you why this was a radical way of thinking for the culture at this time. When Paul is writing this, daughters, women, could not inherit any property. So when Paul says son, people would assume that it just meant men who are heirs. But Paul is expanding the term here. He's saying all are included in Christ. It is not by law keeping that we are sons. It is through Christ. And so when I'm talking about sonship here in just a moment, this, this, this refers to all male, male and female. And from here, Paul is going to develop a thought of sonship through Christ in full. So follow what Paul's going to do. Verse 27, if you look at your text. Our sonship is first rooted in Christ. If you read verse 27, it says, For many of you as, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. One of the things that we have to understand is this is not making baptism essential to salvation, but rather comparing a physical symbol to a spiritual symbol. So there is this ancient practice, and I'm not telling you that we need to adopt this practice at all, but when in the ancient church, they would totally disrobe for baptism. Okay, you're like, thank you for not walking in that way like we got we moved past that right they didn't have any cool black shirts it was just like no they disrobed and again i don't want to go there right but is it a beautiful beautiful picture of what baptism is supposed to do right because as you disrobe you are throwing away your old garments and you get into the water which completely covers you amen baptist right Completely covers you. And these waters represent death to life. That Christ has totally covered you. And when you emerge back from the water, what does it say? That you have put on Christ. His clothing. His righteousness. So when we put on Christ, this is the spiritual symbol to what's happening physically. And there's so many implications to Christ covering you. But to this idea of sonship, this is spiritual clothing of adornment. Like, I think we can get really complicated today. I could get really complicated. But I think one of the things that maybe you need to hear today is that God loves you. Like, he's not just putting up with you. In Christ, you have these clothes that cover your nakedness, your shame, your guilt, and it anchors who you are. Because when we are in Christ, it says that God sees us through the lens of Christ. Do you understand how the Father loves the Son eternally? We are entering into this partnership. But not only is our sonship totally in Christ, our sonship unifies the divided and equalizes the elevated. Notice what it says here, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice how this flows. All are sons through faith, for as many put on Christ. All are one in Christ Jesus. 
And again, this is a verse that has been ripped out of context, made meaning for many different things that are not true. And the first thing that we have to say is Paul is not arguing for a monolithic culture where everybody's the same. He is not saying that distinctions don't matter. He's saying they do not affect your standing before God. So therefore, social implications should follow that. In the family of God, the gospel is the great equalizer. One of the main points that Paul is making in this letter is that it's wrong that Jews are requiring Gentiles to become like them. And this is why, because Christ shows no partiality. And so the gospel tears down the dividing line between cultures, Jew and Greek, between class, slave and free, and the strongest of all barriers of this day, gender. In the family of God, there are distinctions. Actually, if you look at Christianity at a global scale, Rebecca McLaughlin has a great book about this. It is the most diverse movement to ever hit the history of the planet. But our distinctions should not give way to hierarchy. In the family of God, there is no grounds for arrogance or division because everyone has entered the family on the same basis. Not who, what, not what you do, not who your daddy is, but through Christ. And so if you're using a distinction to push down your brother or sister, you actually don't understand the gospel. In Christ, God is creating a new kind of family, one based on grace, one where everyone is on the same playing field. And the worldly distinctions have no currency in the kingdom of God. Not only are we reunited to Christ, but we're united to each other, one family in Christ. Church, if I could just say this, this is not in my notes, this is for free. But the gospel witness of letting people in who disagree and us being able to elevate Christ as our one unifying factor, you know what that would do for a polarized culture? That would show that our distinctions don't lead to hierarchy. And so sitting in the same pew as you, the same chair as you, could be someone with a totally different worldview. But what matters is that they're in the family of God. So what Paul does is expands our horizons on what it means to be the family of God. Here's what he does. He reaches upward, right? We are sons of the creator. Then he reaches horizontally. We're united with every other Christian regardless of anything the world says should divide us. Then verse 29 reaches back through history, right? The nature of the gospel says that in Christ you are Abraham's seed, an heir to the promise. And I love, 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 love what John Stott has to say about this section. Because speaking about our culture who struggles with finding meaning, he says, to to such people comes the promise that in Christ we find ourselves. The The unattached become attached. They find their place in eternity, being sons of God, in society, brothers and sisters in the same family, and in history, related to God's people down to the ages. There is a three-dimensional attachment which we gain when we are in Christ. And he uses Paul's language in height, in breadth, and length. Can we pause just for a moment? 
Because it gets better, unbelievably. It gets better here in just a moment. Can we pause on what we're hearing? And skip to verse 7 for just one second. It says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. From slave to son to heir. You know, one of the, I believe, one of the most overlooked aspects of our salvation is the idea of sonship. Oftentimes, if you read a theology book, you'll see things like justification, which we've talked about, and atonement and regeneration as what they call the order of salvation. And oftentimes, adoption is kind of put underneath justification. But I believe that adoption is unique. And you know, for a long time, I, I grew up in this church, by the way. Okay, I grew up in this town. I, uh, some of the best naps I ever had were in this church. And um, I, uh, for a long time, um, thought of my salvation as Jesus died for me, so my sins are taken off me. And that's true, 100%. But as I lived, I lived as if my sins were still on me. I lived as if, as if God's love for me was dependent on my performance for him. I didn't understand what was really said here, right? I understood that there was a status chain. I'm a child of God, all the things that I needed to understand. But I didn't understand the other legal part of this transaction, that something was put on me. That means that I don't just get a pardon or justification, but rather I'm adopted, which means I have the legal status of a son. I'm a son of God, and I am seen legally by God as his own son, Jesus, and suddenly I'm accepted. I am adopted. Let me just say that that way of life is paradigm shifting. Because we will be trapped in the performance nature of religion if we do not understand our adoption as sons. And it says this, this is the, the analogy in verses 1 through 3. There's this analogy that is used to explain our standing under the law. And under the law we were like children, it says, who were waiting for the day that, came, that they came of age, that their father had set for their inheritance to become a reality. Slavery is our natural state. We've talked about how the law held us captive, yet the promise has always been the same. From Abraham to us today, to be adopted into God's family is by grace alone. And notice what Paul's going to do here towards the end of this section. He's going to explain how the gospel is a story about how God takes action to bring you from slavery to sonship. What do we see? We see two actions. First, we see in verse 4, God sends his son. But when the fullness of time had come, the 2,000 years that we just talked about in the histories, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And what did Jesus do? This is what we've been talking about. We were justified. 
This is a change of legal status for a judge. You were headed for death row, yet someone freed you, and now you have no penalty under your name. The price was paid. Jesus was a real human being, he says, under the same law that we were under. Yet Jesus came to set us free by taking on our own captivity. Do you see that? But don't miss the reason. We can often just stop the gospel here. But there's just another piece. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law, us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent his son that we might be redeemed. And the NIV says that we would have full rights. Don't miss this. Adoption can have a lot of baggage in our culture. My wife and I have been in the adoption world for a while. And uh, if you know anything about that world, it's unpredictable. It's emotionally draining. It will take you further and a lot to say there. But there is a picture of adoption here that the original hearers would have understood. Because in this idea of giving of sonship, there was a wealthy person who had no children and they got up in years. And they would see, they would see that there was no one to take the inheritance And so usually adoptions in this culture would be 19, 20 years old. And when that wealthy person would adopt their son, they would adopt an heir. And when the legal papers went through, in a second, his status changed. And it's like he was never an orphan. He always had a father. They had full rights as Son, You see, adoption differs from justification. If justification tells me I'm legally cleared, I'm free from death row, adoption gives me a father, a family, and a future. You see, God just doesn't make us legally free. He makes us legally his. Paul wants us to see that Christ didn't just remove the curse we deserve, but he also gives the blessing that Christ deserved. Sonship. You see, God sent his son to obtain our adoption, but God sends his spirit so that we can experience our adoption. Why do I know that? It's because, verse 6, because you are sons, not if you are sons, because you are sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And what the scriptures are getting at here is something paradigm shifting. That there's a difference between knowing your status as a son and experiencing your sonship. And this is a piece of the gospel that we don't talk about much. There is something needed to convince you that you are a son of God. I don't have time for this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. This summer, I told you about my testimony. I'm a performance-driven person, right? This summer... I was struggling with my call to ministry. Not that I was questioning I am called to ministry, but I was just tired, just tired. And camp was coming up. If you know anything about camp, it will drain you, right? And we put on our own camps. And the speaker there um, came up to me on the last night. And I was just being broken by the Spirit, (laughs) just broken in a good way. 
He doesn't know what I've been struggling with. He doesn't know the things that I've been wrestling with through my own life and just call. And he rests his hand on me. And he says, you're a son. Before you're a father, before you're a pastor, you're a son of God. And guess what happened to me? Ah, you know, it was just, it was like, that's what I needed. But what was that? It was the spirit speaking through someone else to testify with my spirit that I am a son of God because I understood intellectually that I was a son of God, but I wasn't experiencing it. And this is what the spirit of God does for each and every one of us because it goes back to this quote at the beginning that I gave you, the huge deficit that we carry around, looking for someone, looking for us. At a theological level, this is what God does. He sins. He's looking And I don't know of a better example than Luke 15. This is the parable of the prodigal son. A son takes his inheritance early, leaves his father for dead, right? And he takes all the inheritance, and he spends all of his money foolishly, and he finds himself eating what the pigs eat in the mud. And he comes to himself, right? That's what the text says. He realizes, I could probably be uh, living a better life than this. So I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to have this great apology. I'm going to work my debt off. But notice what the father does in Luke 15, chapter 20. I brought it with me. It says, he arose and came to the father. This is the son. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I don't know what your heart towards your own father is. You could have the best father in the world, which I did, or the worst. But we can't make and our view of the father, God the father, tainted because of an earthly father. This shows the heart of the father. And what this implies is that our God was looking for him. He saw him and he ran and he wasn't sitting there tapping his foot and going, man, you got a lot to pay back. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about this. He says, like the prodigal, we have a native inability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and love. We're slow to realize the implications of this. Listen to this. We have the status as sons, but we have the mindset of a hired servant. This is what the Spirit of God does. It validates our status. It emphasizes who we already are. It emphasizes it so much that the text would give this word that's just crying out to God, Abba, which if you have a one-year-old, they can say A and B, Abba. It is something that you can say when you have no other words left. It's Abba, Dad, you are my father. And if you have never experienced that, oh, Father, I pray, I pray that you would send your spirit so that we can validate our status. This is what Romans 8 would say. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. 
Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. You know what fear is? Fear is not believing your status as son. It's believing that God doesn't actually love you like the Bible says. And if I was to go into this word of elementary principles that you see in verses 1 through 3, it's the, it's the lie of the serpent that would say, God's not for you. It's the lie of the serpent that would say, you know what? The Bible says this, but you've done a lot in your life. You know what you did last night? It was Saturday night, and you're here this morning? No. You see, the elementary principles that we can be captive by are these things, these ideologies that say, get yourself to God. And what we see in the parable of Luke 15 is the kiss of the Father. Charles Spurgeon has a whole sermon on this, these four words, which is great. But the son comes to the father not believing the grace, not believing the status, not believing the inheritance and the party and the ring that was waiting for him. Yet what happened? The father embraces and the father kisses. This is a picture of what the spirit of God does for us. You can be adopted yet not experience your adoption. You can feel broken, you can feel unloved, you can feel unwanted, you can feel abandoned, you can feel guilty, you can feel dirty, and you can feel abused this morning. But what the Spirit of God does is testify with our spirit that we are sons of God so that we do not fall back into fear. We are embraced. We are kissed. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, puts it this way. What is the father's kiss? The father's kiss is coming back home. Home is the center of my being where I can hear a voice that says, you are my beloved, in you I am well pleased. And is that not the point of National Son and Daughter Day? But guys, you may have not had a dad or a mom that did that for you, but you have a father in heaven that is pleased to call you son. And at a deep level, you desire this. I know you do. Because have you felt the deep insecurity of never doing enough? I have. Have you experienced the endless anxiety of not living up to a certain standard? Do you feel this sense of lostness, this sense of brokenness that nothing can numb? Not success, not money, nothing. Do you feel a sense of restlessness? Do you feel a sense of joylessness with worship and prayer? Are you secretly comparing yourself with other people all the time, filled with jealousy and self-doubt? Guys, you have a father that has sent his son to bring you into the family and sent his spirit to convince you of it. You can rest. You can rest. So here's what our sonship does. It reveals the objective truth that we are justified by Christ. Then pulls us close to kiss us and assure us of the truth. Do you realize the identity shift that happens when you have this? Modern identity would say, look within, define yourself. That's where truth lies. 
It's an inward, outward type of way of defining who you are. So we have, we have to like maybe tell ourselves that w- what we are with no objective standing behind it. Adoption, sonship, reshapes your identity. It doesn't start within. It starts outward and works its way in to reshape who you are. Nothing can touch it or manipulate it. You are not what you say you are. You're what God says you are, and that's a son. You are not your past. You are a son. You are not the worst things someone said, has said about you. You are a son. You are not the best things people have said about you. You are a son. You are not only as good as your greatest achievement. You are a son. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 1 John 3, 1. As an adopted child, You have the access and the rights of Christ. So come to the Father, pray, cry out to him. In your distress, in your worry, in your joy, you have the access of a son. You have the care of a son. And you have the future that God has promised Jesus. And that is an inheritance, an eternal life with him. Do you know what eternal life is? Jesus describes it one time. Did you know that? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You will be known by God, be seen by God, and you will know him for eternity. That's sonship. A couple weeks ago, I was walking into a JV football game because my life is just going great, right? Just JV football, it's like the best thing you could watch. And I brought my daughter along because she's a glutton for punishment like me. And no, there was a student, I was like, he's going to do good. And he scored a touchdown that day, and I was able to celebrate him. It was great. But about a quarter in, after the bribery of the candy wore off, okay, my daughter was getting a little restless. And so I grabbed her. And I just said, hey, baby, I love you. I said, did you know that I love you? She said, duh, Dad, I know that. She's five. Okay, so pray for me. And laughing, I just said back, I said, well, why are you so sure I love you? And she said, because I'm Ellie. <laughs> Y'all, I'm an imperfect father that imperfectly loves my children every day. But let my five-year-old teach you something she taught me that day. I don't have to recite my good deeds and my religious fervor for God to love me. He knows my name. He knows what I'm about. And he loves you because of who you are in Christ Jesus. There is a father who is searching for you, who's waiting for you to come over that hill. Your adoption is rooted in Christ, promised through Abraham, and emphasized through the Spirit. Let's stop the search. Would you pray for me? Pray with me. Father, sometimes your truth is unbelievable. 
Sometimes it just doesn't make sense to what we've been formed to think our whole lives. And Father, I pray for two people in this room right now. I pray for the person that has not seen the need for a Savior. They've been trying to live up to this standard their whole life. And they know it, but they don't want to admit to themselves that it's just not working. Father, would you draw that person to yourself this morning? Would you infiltrate their heart with the love and compassion that is in your nature? And secondly, Father, I pray for the person in this room that would intellectually know that they are a son of God. But if they're honest with themselves, they haven't experienced sonship in years. The Bible is dry. Prayer seems like they're talking to the ceiling. Worship is just something that they're checking off the list. Oh, Father, would you emphasize their sonship this morning? They are a child of God. Not because of all the good things that we've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and the things that we have going for us, but simply because you have called us from death to life. You have put a ring on our finger and said, this is the inheritance that's for you. I pray for that person in this room right now that would say, That's just, it's just unbelievable. Send your spirit, Father, to emphasize, to validate as they cry out, Abba. And let us with one voice declare the King of Kings as our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.